Tonight I'd like to speak a little bit about the path of meditation and the usefulness of this particular way of working with ourselves, why we do it and where it can lead. Why are we asking you to sit, to walk, to keep silence, to refrain from all your usual distractions and forever exhorting you over and over to come back, to remember, to pay attention? We do these things in order to have insight. Insight into what? Insight into the actual nature of the mind and the body. Not our ideas about how it all works, but seeing directly in our experience their actual nature. By seeing the actual nature of the mind-body process, we can actually begin to see how we construct our personal reality and what the limitations of this reality are. Vipassana practice can help us to deconstruct this personal reality that we have created, what and who we have imagined ourselves to be. It can show us the bars of our self-constructed cage as well as the way out. So there's bad news and there's good news. There's a story One night, a man was dreaming, a very vivid dream, as we all do at times, about being chased by a very vicious monster, a very frightening monster. And in the dream, he was running away, running, 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 and the monster was chasing him. And finally, the monster caught him, threw him on the ground, and looked as if he was about to devour him. And the man screamed out, what is to become of me? At which point the monster said, I don't know, it's your dream. (laughs) It is our dream, and most of us don't see how we have constructed it and how we are perpetuating our dilemma. Tonight I'd like to look at the dream of our personal reality and how this very simple technique of Vipassana practice can help us to see how to wake up from this dream. So we begin very simply what happens when we are silent, when we slow down, when we still the body and deprive the mind of its usual outlets. There's a metaphor from the Zen tradition that says that the posture and technique of meditation are like putting a snake in a bamboo reed. What happens when you put a snake in a narrow tube? Well, the very active, wiggling, fluid nature of the snake begins to show itself. And it is very much the same with our minds. We say to it, calm down, focus, be still, stay here, don't go away. And what does it do? Does it pay attention? Like the snake, it's wiggling, it's, it's fluid, it's active, it's all over the place. It goes to the past, it goes to the future. It goes anywhere at times, it seems, but just be quiet, sit down, stay here. 
So that's one of the first things we learn about the mind, how it goes all over the place. And it's very unpredictable and we can't control it. Sometimes we want to remember something. What does the mind do? It's like the mind is on vacation. It doesn't give us the information. It's very frustrating. Other times we may be in a situation where we feel some appropriate thought will occur. And instead, it can be quite ludicrous. I remember a time when I was um, hiking in Nepal, and it was the first time I'd ever seen the Himalayan mountains, which are incredibly beautiful and majestic. And one morning we got up to see the sunrise over the Himalayas. So I'm sitting there watching this incredible view. And suddenly, out of nowhere, what is my mind doing? There's this little song. Boom, boom, the foaming cleanser. (laughs) This does not seem appropriate for that moment, you know. Where do these thoughts come from? Who produces them? Where do they go? And the mind is very reactive. I know you've seen this. What does it do when something unpleasant arises? It doesn't like it. It wants to get rid of it. When something pleasant arises, oh, it likes that. I want more of that. Seeing these reactions of the mind is part of what we call insight, seeing the nature of the mind, what we call the mind. And by keeping a still posture and staying fairly quiet, instead of acting on all these reactions, we can sit and observe them, pay attention, see all these tendencies arise and pass away. And by doing so, it's very empowering because we learn we don't have to be a slave of our mind. As Christina said once, we don't have to be mugged by our own minds. We don't have to follow the reactions. We can watch them and arise and pass away. We can observe the fleeting nature of all of our mind's tendencies. Keeping this posture and observation also helps us to see more clearly the nature of the body. And one of the first and most vivid things we learn about the body is how it seems to be caught in some kind of endless search for comfort. Things are never quite just right. You know, we try to really get it together to find the posture which will work for us. And it does, perhaps, for a little while. But then once again, we're, we're caught in having to find another posture, another way to make ourselves comfortable. And we learn that the body, despite its apparent solidity, is actually a process of ever-changing sensations, and that what we call pain is neither solid nor permanent. The pain that you had this morning, where is it now? It is a constantly changing process this body of many momentary sensations. And just as with the mind, we can learn to calm and relax our body and observe what goes on without acting on every impulse. 
We find we can observe pain without being so, that the effect of it, without reacting with fear and aversion. And so, so through this very simple posture and technique, we can see directly into the actual nature of the mind and body. We can also see how one, the condition of one, affects the other. A pain in the body can bring a very immediate reaction in the mind, usually of fear or future projection or a story or a happy thought or memory in the mind will bring an immediate sense of relaxation and ease in the body. And conversely, relaxing the body slows and calms the mind. These two are constantly interacting. So by bringing this kind of precise moment-to-moment attention to the mind and the body, it gives us more space. It gives us more space, a way to stand back and observe without getting so caught up in our reactions. We can begin to relate to our minds, our bodies, rather than be completely identified and caught by them. We see we have a choice in how we relate to what arises. And this is very empowering. We no longer need to be at the effect of our mind's antics, of our body's pains. We can begin to relate to these events with an attention which is calm and clear, allowing. Now the silence of a retreat is both a sanctuary and also very revealing to us. It can become like a hall of mirrors. It is a sanctuary because it allows us to relax and drop our usual social persona and learn to attune to our inner world with greater sensitivity. It is also a hall of mirrors because in the silence, our mind's tendency to project outwards becomes very apparent. Most of you have probably noticed by now that you've had a few thoughts about the other people here, a few judgments perhaps, a few likes, a few dislikes. How much do we uh, judge other people, especially in silence, when we don't really have very much information? We only know this person walks very slowly and they, they eat kind of strangely or whatever. We don't have a lot of information to go on. So how quickly does the mind jump in with its story, with its evaluation? In the silence of a meditation retreat, our, projects, our projections onto other people are a little bit like the game, you know, pin the tail on the donkey. They have about the same degree of accuracy. <laughs> you know, we see someone who reminds us of our boss or our ex-partner, or someone who has a, just a way of walking that you don't like, or a hairstyle that bothers you, or, you know, it just can be the slightest little thing. And immediately, one of our judgments will jump in there and get pinned on that particular person. Of course, they're completely unaware of all of this. It happens very quickly, and usually without our noticing. So I'd like to suggest three things when you notice you're 
your mind's thoughts about others. One, to remember it is your dream. Two, suspend for a while the belief in the accuracy of your projections and instead take some time at the end of the retreat when you have time to speak to each other to check out your projection, to see how accurate it actually is. I've been quite amazed to see how completely, you know, off I was in terms of thinking I knew who this person was. Speak to the person. You don't have to tell them, you know, I've been really disliking you the whole time. <laughs> but in a more subtle way, check out your projections and you might be very surprised. Now, this is part of what we do at the beginning of a retreat when we start on this meditative path. And once we have become relatively consistent in our ability to attend to the present moment over time, we are likely to have all kinds of meditative experiences. And they can be very interesting because we are seeing things we have never seen before, We are going from the known world into the unknown. And because when we sit like this in silence, practically anything is possible. All kinds of experiences may arise. And we we may get quite fascinated and so completely fascinated that we can actually spend years exploring this whole terrain of meditative experience. I mean, what do we have to work with We here? We have six sense doors. We have hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, body sensations, and a mind. Now, that creates quite a few possibilities. <laughs> and all of these possibilities keep, you know, combining and coming up with new, new information, new experiences. So, we ask you to explore all of this and you can spend a long time doing so. The meditation may show us many things about ourselves where we have unfinished work to do in our lives, unfinished psychological work. The cultivation of concentration will condition the arising of many states of great bliss and happiness, rapture. Powers of mind may develop Now, exploring this, as I said, can be very interesting and can keep us very busy, sitting more courses. And we can very easily become protective of and invested in maintaining our kind of repertoire. We begin to know what our repertoire is and we begin to look forward to our repertoire at the next retreat. There was a time when I was sitting a three-month course here, and um, I always hate to tell the story because it seems so obvious to me now, the mistake I was making, but at the time I, I really didn't know at all, so I have to be honest. When I was sitting a three-month course, I was sitting somewhere in the back over there, and it was very quiet, and I was having a wonderful, very rapturous, blissful Every time I sat, there would just be flowing energy and light, and I was just in heaven. 
So I was doing my repertoire, and then one day in the back of the hall, during a walking period, in comes a new yogi. And they bring with them this pile of boards and under one arm and a pile of cardboard under the other. And they proceed to set up a little bit, like a little cave for themselves in the back of the room back there. It was quite a construction. I must say, I've never seen anything like it since. There was just this little, little meditative house they were creating for them. <laughs> and of course, this started to make quite a bit of noise, and it was disturbing my bliss, so I was quite upset about it. So I thought, all right, never mind, I'll go to my room, because I had a single room up in the annex in what they call the Ritz. So I took myself very mindfully and quietly up to my, my room, and just as I'd gotten settled in there, that winter they were having a lot of leaks in the roof up there, so lo and behold, just as I'm getting settled in, here come the workmen to repair the roof right over my head. Bang, bang, bang. I thought, oh no, you know, I can't sit in the hall, I can't sit in my room, where can I go? And I thought, I'll go to the woods, I'll go out to the woods. So I put on my coat, I'm very calm, I go out to the woods, I'm walking down the path, looking for a little quiet place. Suddenly there are gunshots. <laughs> Helicopters arrive on the scene. It is hunting season, and the hunters are out there in hot pursuit. And at that point, I finally got the message that I had to let go. I absolutely had to let go. As much as I wanted this wonderful, blissful, rapturous experience to continue unabated, the universe was giving me another message that I needed to let go. And at the time, it felt like quite a big loss. But in retrospect, as I said, I can see how greedy I was, how grasping I was in terms of trying to protect my blissful experience my meditative experience. And in the course of that, I was getting quite angry and resentful at everybody around me. Now, this was entirely self-produced. I mean, there was noise, but this reaction was entirely self-produced. It was my dream. So, we learn from these experiences and over time, our kind of fascination with and our seeing the thinking that they are terribly significant fades. And the meditative experience begin to be seen in perspective as impermanent and empty as everything else. They arise and pass away. We don't own them. We can't control them. And even more important, we see that they are interesting, but not ultimately liberating. They're not ultimately liberating. So we need to go further in our understanding. And this is a very important step in the practice. To go further means asking, all these meditative experiences I've been having, who are they serving? 
And all too often the answer is the same. They become a subtle or even not so subtle way of bolstering or building the self-image of the meditator. I am having all these experiences. I must be progressing, etc. It is very interesting how this works, and we can really see it in our own dream. Most of the time we use our experiences to refer back to and reach a conclusion about who we are based on the particular experience. If we're having a really bad day, we're feeling, oh, I can't follow my breath for more than, you know, two seconds, and I'm all over the place, I'm twitching and pain and itching, and oh, I just must be a terrible meditator, I'm failing at this. Or we have a very good sitting, what we call a good sitting. We think, wow, look at me. I must be getting good at this. I'm becoming actually quite a mindful, sensitive meditator. All of these experiences kind of wake up a sense of self. becomes very predominant. The limitation of all experience, no matter how very profound it may seem at the time, is that they keep us in a subject-object relationship of an I having something, doing something, or becoming something. And the subject I identifies with the experience. And it is this very relationship which needs to be inquired into. I'd like to tell another story. This is the story of a very old and wise and kind king who had come to the end of his reign, and he had no heir. His only son had been killed in battle, and his wife had passed away, and he was reflecting on his how he could pass on the the reins of power, and he decided to do kind of an unusual thing for that time. He decided that he would interview people and choose an heir. So he put out the word to his ministers, who put it out to the, the, the common people, that the king was going to be interviewing anyone who wished to show up, for the position of heir. So the day came when people were invited to come, and the day came, and like a hundred people or more showed up, and they had, first they were led into the palace, and the first thing was that they were given a wonderful bath and shower, wonderful soaps and lotions and barber and grooming, and they got themselves all cleaned up, and then they were given an array of clothes to choose from. They could choose whatever clothes they wanted to put on, and so they got very busy doing this. And and then they were given a feast. They were given every kind of food to enjoy, to enjoy and desserts and beverages, and just this great feast. All in preparation, you know, for going up to interview with the king. 
And then after the feast, they had entertainment, they had, um, they didn't have movies or videos in, but they had live entertainment, they had, you know, minstrels and dancing and songs, and it was a wonderful, wonderful, very generous gesture of the king in this, this uh, effort of his to find an heir. So all of the people enjoyed this tremendously, they got very much into it and all that. Well, the king, meanwhile, is sitting upstairs, you know, and he's kind of looking at the clock and thinking, well, you know, where are the people? I'm ready to interview. Where are they? So nobody comes. And finally he sends down his, for his minister to come up, and the minister comes up and he says, well, you know, where are the candidates? I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see, you know, who's going to be my heir? And the minister just was very sad, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, but they, they've all gone home. They took, the, they took the food, they took the clothes, they took the soaps, and they've gone home. This is the story of all of us, in a way, you could say. Looking for short-term gain in terms of grabbing onto our sensory world and losing sight of the greater opportunity which is available which is our inheritance, our birthright, to know who we truly are. Ramakrishna said, people weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or can't get money, but who sheds even one teardrop because he or she has not seen God? We get very involved in this sensory world of ours. And in a way, what feeds this pursuit of sense pleasure, I feel, is a kind of misguided seeking for wholeness, for completeness. We have a sense of lack and try to compensate through the accumulation of wealth and power and knowledge and achievement. Or we look for wholeness in the ideal relationship, or in the perfect lifestyle, or through the success of our children. So when we come to being alone like this in silence, it may seem like a very extreme stripping away of all of our usual props and reference points. An acute sense of lack may be felt here. But in time, as many of you I know are coming to intuit, through the meditation, we find that it is only in knowing ourselves in complete simplicity, being no one special, that true wholeness is found. Not having to prove anything or patch up what is lacking or protect a particular self-image, just being present with what is brings with it a sense of wholeness and completeness. Another story is about my puppy dog, Max. Now, Max is now about nine months old, but when he was about six months old, I took him on a leash, which he wasn't real familiar with, but I took him on a leash to downtown Berkeley one day and going on my errands around. And I decided, it was a hot day. I decided to get a iced tea, so I 
tied him to, there was an outdoor cafe, so there was like plastic chairs on the sidewalk, and I tied Max on his leash to one of these plastic chairs, <laughs> and I ran, already some of you know, I ran in the um, cafe to get a nice tea, and I'd been in there like a minute, and suddenly I hear this big commotion behind me, and here comes Max dragging his chair after him, in, you know, and barking at the chair all the while. <laughs> And everybody, of course, laughed. Sometimes we're pursuing our sensory pleasure, and sometimes we're dragging around unwanted baggage. Like Max, we drag around with us an obsession, a thought, a fantasy, an unpleasant emotion, a projection about a person. And we feel completely victimized by it, completely caught up in our reaction to something which we take to be real. Max took the chair to be something horrible chasing him. <laughs> Trying to get rid of what we fear or dislike and not realizing that we ourselves are creating the problem. It's rather ridiculous, isn't it? Really rather absurd. We create the problem and then we react to it. So in a progressive meditative system of exploring the world of objects, which this is, the most crucial object of exploration is this I itself, the self-image. And this is the object which the mind and body subscribe to most firmly, me. This mind of ours and this sense of me are constant companions. Indeed, it is the mind which constructs the self-image and keeps it in place. And this identification with self-image most often is unquestioned, but it needs to be questioned. And in order to do this, we need to look a little bit more closely because through the practice we can actually see how this all works. How do we get all of this constructed anyway? So we need to look at what does it mean to be identified with something. To be identified with something means either grasping onto an experience it, an experience it, <laughs> and experience and claiming it as me, as mine, or resisting an experience and claiming it, it as not me, not mine. Oh no, that's not me, and trying to get rid of it. In other words, we can be sure we are identified with an experience when we notice we are trying to protect or maintain something, or when we notice we are rejecting or trying to get rid of something. Now, it seems sort of paradoxical that both grasping and resisting are both actually forms of identification. How can this be? In both cases, what causes the identification with is the thinking about, the dwelling upon, the experience. And I'll give you a very concrete example. For example, you're sitting and anger arises. 
And we immediately associate this feeling of ang anger with a past event, with a story, with a person. And we recall the event in vivid detail. And we begin to relive it over and over again. And as we're doing this, we feel the anger increasing as we dwell on what has occurred. And we justify our anger and we think, I have a right to be angry. Anyone would be angry in that situation. I, I, how else could I possibly react? Of course I'm angry. Now this is one kind of identification with anger. Another kind. Anger arises. We recall a past event, we recall a person, a place, and we begin to relive this over and over again. And as we do, the anger increases. But along with it comes a feeling of real regret and shame and guilt and, oh, I blew it, I should not have been angry. And, oh, and here it is, I'm angry now. And, oh, I must be, I'm just a terrible person for being angry. And I must, I just, oh, next time I just must not get angry again. It's just, I'm. I'm not a good person. Now, this is another kind of identification with anger. The first is a position of, yes, I'm angry and it's justified. The other is a posi position of shame and rejection. I must not be angry. I'm a terrible person. What both of these experiences have in common is that both involve much thinking about and dwelling upon these experiences. This is what creates the identification, the dwelling upon, thinking about it, brooding about it, obsessing about it, and most important of all, drawing conclusions about who you are based on this experience. I am right to be so angry. I am terrible to be so angry. This sense of self is created by these very thoughts, by this story. The other thing about dwelling is that when we dwell on something, it stays around. It stays around. It's the best way to keep something around is just to keep dwelling on it. And it, in dwelling on it, it begins to loom very large in our awareness. It begins to take up all the space there is so that it comes to seem very solid and immovable and permanent. I will always be an angry person. That's all that exists in my world. But the truth is, like Max, we don't see our part in keeping it around by obsession, by dwelling, by replaying, by rehearsing what we're going to do in the future, by the way we use it to reach a conclusion about ourselves. I'm an angry person, or I shouldn't be an angry person. This process can be observed by all of us, and it is very useful to see how this works. Through this same process, we get identified with many, many of the objects of our attention. Not only our emotions, but with our opinions, our beliefs, our attitudes, our past, our future, our body sensations. All of them can be taken up as the kind of 
lift-off place for dwelling, for creating a story. Now, I'd like to give another example, which perhaps for some of you will be a little bit more concrete. There was a time when I was sitting here when there was an Indian teacher by the name of Munindra. And one night, in a talk he was giving, he, he said something which I have remembered. And that it was a wonderful teaching for me. He said, he said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of your mother is not your mother. He didn't say, not, not some thoughts of your mother are not your mother, and other thoughts of your mother are your mother. He said, the thought of your mother, any thought you could possibly have about your mother, is not your mother. Who she is in her total being cannot be captured in thought, in words. In just the same way, can you say to yourself, the thought of myself is not myself. The thought of myself is not myself. Now what comes up for you when you hear that? Anybody? Relief! (laughs) Thank goodness! (laughs) Perhaps I'm more than my thoughts. Anything else? I want to offer you this, invite you to, to open to this possibility of going through the next half hour or hour or day or week without believing any of your thoughts about yourself. What if you just didn't believe them? It's a little bit like that eraser, you know, that Christina mentioned, just erasing all these notions about who you are. Try it. Try it. See what comes up. Whatever you think about yourself is not you. Any thought you have is limited, partial, fragmented, and cannot capture the whole picture. Now, this is a Buddhist teaching. This is not just a game. In this Avatamsaka Sutra, it says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. The heart of spiritual understanding is moving from identification with so many views of self, of me, of I, to having no view of self. Now this, to some of you, may sound like a kind of nice esoteric idea, but what the practice offers us is the opportunity to see very directly on the spot how we construct our belief in self by dwelling, by obsessing, by taking our thoughts to be real, and how we maintain it. And in the seeing of that construction comes the freedom from it. In the very seeing, we are letting go of our belief in self. 
Just reflect in moments of bare attention, of just seeing, just walking, just hearing, just thinking. Is there a thought of I? When you're really connecting in that simple, direct way, is there a thought of I? Perhaps there is a moment later or even minutes later. But in the very moment of just that bare, simple, direct contact, Seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling. When there's complete acceptance of things just as they are, there's no thought of, no view of self to protect or maintain. Such moments are a glimpse of what is true, that our happiness is not dependent on having any particular self-image. This is actually freedom, to have no view of self, to assert, to protect, or maintain. Seeing very clearly into the way in which identification of experience with me, with mine, occurs, keeps this spiritual quest from being about becoming someone, becoming someone special, a good meditator, an arhat, a Buddha, an enlightened being, a bodhisattva. These images, while they may awaken interest, enthusiasm, aspiration, can too easily solidify the notion that there is someone special to become. But the Buddha himself did not become anyone special, at least not in his own eyes. On the contrary, after his, mom, after his enlightenment, when he was asked, who are you? Are you a saint? He said, no. Are you a Vipassana meditator? No. Are you a bodhisattva? No. What are you? I am awake. I am awake. That's all. He had let go with all identification with self. Nothing to protect, nothing to maintain, nothing to reject. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. The ultimate goal of this practice cannot be objectified. It is not a state. It is not an experience. It's not about becoming something. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's not an it. Who you are is beyond all views. Who you are is not conditioned by or dependent on the presence or absence of objects. Indeed, who you are is already present and already familiar. It only awaits your recognition. It only awaits the complete relaxation and letting go of your deepest tendencies of mind and body. And this is what this practice can actually help us to do, to surrender, to let go of those tendencies which keep us seeking for 
and grasping at objects, whether those objects are meditative objects or sensory objects, they are still objects. Jean Klein says, you can never obtain what you are. It is always present. Any movement to attain it is thus a going away. Because when you want something, you suppose you lack it. Who you are reveals itself by itself. So perhaps we could sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 24, 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.